You are listening to Double Espresso with D, with me, D Sterling. I love a great story. And in season two, Meet the Environmentalists, I will be having coffee with pioneers, game changers, leaders, and entrepreneurs who are truly making a difference in our world. I hope you can join us each week to hear about their fascinating and inspiring journeys. I'm very excited to introduce my wonderful guest today, Bianca Rangecroft. Bianca, welcome to Double Espresso with Dee. How are you? I'm very well, Dee. Thank you so much for having me. I couldn't think of a better way to start off a Monday. <laughs> oh, well, listen, and we have our coffees close to hand. Thank you so much for being on the show. So, Bianca, I um, this is all about exchange and conversation over coffee. And I always ask my guests if they were going to have coffee with anyone, past or present, who would that be? Oh, I would have to say a two-part coffee, I think. It would potentially be with David Attenborough and also a young lady called Alice Edie, who is absolutely amazing. And the reason I want to meet both of them at the same time is because my dad's a similar age to David Attenborough, had also traveled the world. I would love to hear his thoughts and hopes around what we can do in the current climate emergency. Um, And then I'd love to hear from Alice around, she's sort of a a videographer, travels the world to sort of capture amazing communities, um, going through some really, really difficult changes. Um, And so I'd love to hear what she's hopeful about and what youngsters like us can do to really make change and really drive it from a societal perspective. So yeah, I think that would be a very interesting coffee chat. (laughs) Oh, I agree. And I don't know whether you've read um, David Attenborough's latest work, which he says it's like a testament to the future. Yeah. And it's beautifully written, super informative. And also, you know, we are on a race against time, right? We know this and it's real. And literally every day at the moment, we're hearing about new catastrophes, even today, the fires in Greece, etc. So, you know, we all need to do our part. And coming to you, Bianca, you started your career in finance, latterly with Goldman Sachs Asset Management. And You've always loved fashion. You've always loved clothes. And you decided last year to go on the wild side and set up Wearing, W-H-E-R-I-N-G, which is a fantastic (laughs) name. Names are so important, as I always say. And in essence, it's a fashion tech app that allows us to digitalize our wardrobes, right? Uh, What happened? You, You love clothes. What got you to this point where you wanted to do something where we use our wardrobes better and really encouraging people to do that in a very active way? Yeah, absolutely. So look, I think for me, this all kind of happened in 2020. And it really came from a profound desire to sort of democratize the personal styling landscape. And that kind of came after I had worked on the Stitch Fix IPO. I had done a lot of due diligence into kind of machine learning and how we could look to tech to really improve, you know, the lives of billions of women around the world. But that was really from a consumption perspective. It wasn't looking at what we already owned. And for me, that was a huge part of the equation that was so fascinating, right? And it's obviously got this whole impact lens to it. And so, you know, for me, it really was out of this kind of desire to fundamentally change the way we interact with our clothes, i.e. up-end throwaway culture. And it really came from a place of, as you said before, I loved clothes. I was a recovering hypocrite. I used to go out and buy things during my lunch break and think, I cannot keep doing this. 
And so for me, the system was broken. We all did, trust me. <laughs> right? <laughs> exactly. Um, and so for me, you know, the system was really broken. I wasn't able to see what I owned. I was impulse buying. I was never really getting it right. And the lack of inspiration in the styling process to me meant only one thing. We had to, you know, harness the power of machine learning to help us optimize that process and really make our own wardrobe the basis of everything that we then look at in terms of shopping, in terms of personal stylists, etc. Totally. And that was the starting point. And it occurs to me, I mean, I love clothes, as you know, and I really look to buy less, but buy better, repurpose, rework and keep my pieces and maybe pass them down to my daughter or to my nieces or to my girlfriends and other people in the family. And I think clothes are so fundamental. I mean, often we talk about the superficiality of uh, clothing, but actually Mm. clothes give us our identity, right? They give us our personal identity. You might buy something beautiful and it's a talisman. It's a symbol of an achievement in your life. It records a moment in the same way that piece of jewelry might. It might be something you Mm. pass down or pass on. And therefore, I think there's a seriousness to clothes and the purpose they serve in our lives. You know, like we all know if we're going into a big meeting, okay, things are a bit more relaxed these days, but you feel better if you're dressed beautifully, if you're dressed appropriately, you hold yourself better, right? You do. So we've all been in those situations. You've got your suit on or you've got, you you know, you're wearing something that you feel good in and it makes you feel stronger about yourself. So I think this element of clothing must be recognized. I also think that, you know, from an anthropological point of view or an historical point of view, Clothing says an awful lot about an era, a time, a society. Uh, Look at in the West, what happened. Status. Right? Like in the 20th century, women literally started wearing the pants, right? (laughs) And that's changed an awful lot of elements of our society and how things are done and how things are run since then, right? Tell us um, about the app, because in essence, one, it's about being able to see everything you have, but Mm. also put it together in different ways because people often don't know what they have in their cupboard. I mean, I think the current stat is three out of five items bought every year are thrown away and 85% of textiles purchased are go to landfill, which is like a garbage truck of rubbish every second, frankly. But then you're building out this marketplace of um, allowing users to repurpose, to have mended pieces, to share, to borrow, etc. And I know ultimately there is a sustainable circular market in, in that, which I think is really fundamental. Tell me a little bit about that whole aspect of, I guess, empowering conscientious consumers to, you know, do better with their wardrobe, buy in a way which is more eco-friendly and so forth. Mm, I couldn't have said that better myself, Dee. Thank you. <laughs> So I think, look, what's central to our sort of mission of democratizing personal styling, which is, which for me really has to be for every woman everywhere. It's really about sort of transcending these barriers of age, of income level, et cetera. And what we really wanted to do with this app is essentially help women go through all these different stages of their lives. So you know, my wardrobe when I was, you know, young and at university uh, was very different to my banking wardrobe and to my current, you know, fashion tech founder wardrobe. Um, so for us, it's really all about fighting this I have nothing to wear dilemma, which feels super universal. And basically what this means practically is really take a user from end to end throughout their whole user journey with their wardrobe. So it obviously means seeing everything that you currently own. 
It means helping you identify the things that maybe you need to kind of get rid of, ethically donate them as a first step of kind of, you know, making your wardrobe a little bit more zen, a little bit more kind of on point as you go through ages, transformations, job changes, etc. Then it also means helping you make the most of your wardrobe. And this is where our kind of, you know, best feature, it's called the Dress Me feature. It's an homage uh, to the movie Clueless that came out about 25 years ago, which I'm sure a lot of female listeners will be will be familiar to with. And that basically is a machine learning, totally tech-driven feature that allows you to sort of refresh your outfits. And it shows you all the possible combinations, things that you would never have thought of. And you can kind of tweak the shoes, change the accessories, etc. But that is one of our biggest USPs because it allows women, again, of all ages, to see their wardrobe in a new light, to find all these cool, you know, fresh item combinations or outfit combinations that they would never have thought of. And then, you know, the third part of that is really to also kind of take out this boredom element because a lot of us shop when we're bored or when we're feeling down or when we need a little bit of a pick-me-up. And so what we also have built is this amazing area in the app where you can kind of put your own outfits together, shape things around. Uh, You can, you know, sort of have your own wish list, your own mood board. So the app also becomes a place where you can put in all your fashion inspiration, you know, from places like Instagram, Pinterest, and really make it your own, again, plugged into your wardrobe directly. And then the last part, which you alluded to, which is super important to our mission, you know, just basically reducing consumption, but also helping people buy better, as you said before. It's not necessarily about saying, look, we're not going to consume anymore. It's about helping you navigate this is the sea of sustainability. You know, where do you get brands that we as wearing have vetted, um, you know, from a supply chain perspective and can say with confidence, these guys are doing, you know, the right thing for people and planet. So basically, we've also built this customized shopping section on the app where you can essentially find pieces that help complement what you already own. And this is the sort of groundbreaking element from a sustainability perspective, because no one really knows or can see what you currently own and therefore cannot give you recommendations that are sustainable and can help you buy less but better and invest in quality pieces so that's kind of our last you know main usp at the moment it's super interesting and i think you know we do know that fashion is really one of the biggest offenders and but equally it's a real issue this you know i never have anything to wear mantra that a lot of we hear all the time don't we I mean, myself coming out of COVID, I opened my wardrobe and I just stood there looking at it. (laughs) What do I do now? You know, literally. Um, You'll be very happy today, Bianca. I'm wearing a pair of jeans that, um, I mean, jeans are one of the worst culprits because I think it takes 9,000 liters to make a pair of jeans, um, which is enough water for all of us to drink for about five years or, you know, two or three human beings and more CO2 than a a car journey of 70 miles. But um, these jeans, I had them, you know, restitched so many times during COVID because they were one of the few items I actually wore. I've had them for 10 years and there's I refuse to get rid of them, you know. But I think I think it's a, it's wow. a real yes, I'm very proud of myself for that. But I think you know, what is going on, it's related to how society is operating in a way, isn't it? Because certainly 20 years ago, we didn't really have fast fashion as such right? You know, we didn't have platforms where you could order, have it at your desk two hours later and send it all back if you didn't like it. And I guess it's a reflection of society's desire to consume, 
You know, that's sort of how I see it in a way as well. You know, we've become massive consumers, even of things we don't need. Um, even in terms Absolutely. of diet, people in the West eat more and more meat, even though they don't need to because they're not out in the fields and actually doing much exercise most of the time, right? People are much more desk bound. But I think between the year 2000 and the year 2014, people bought over 60% more items per year, right? And yeah. That's one thing. So there's the consumption element. Then there's the production element, I guess. And I know there's something that you've looked at very carefully. And, and, and also as you build out the business and think about working with and supporting and driving traffic to sustainable brands, fashion produces 10% of all carbon emissions, more than all the maritime activity, more than all the international flights. A couple of other little data points just for everyone listening. It's responsible for 20% of all water pollution. And of course, that's a big number. Um, it's the second largest consumer of water supplies in the world. And of course, you know, we've got dyes going into the ecosystem. We've got pollution via plastics and microfibers and so forth. And I know one of the things that you and I've talked about previously is, you know, it's working with sustainable businesses that are finding other ways to dye clothes naturally using herbs and spices and things like that. Clearly, that's quite complicated. It's not an easy science and it's expensive, but we need to have much more of that going on. The other big gripe I have, of course, as well with, um, you know, overproduction and so forth is the microfibers. So I think it's 500 a thousand tons of microfibers go into our oceans every year, which is the equivalent of 50 billion plastic bottles, right? And don't even get me onto polyester. Mm. So I think all of these things are massive, massive issues and people don't really know. What are you seeing in the sustainability space? Because obviously, you know, there is good news. There's a lot of innovation. A dear friend of mine, um, Veronica Chow, was on this show a few weeks ago and she has been looking and investing very heavily into technologies to innovate in an eco friendly, sustainable way. You know, you have designers changing their supply chains, looking at producing in different ways. You have people like Gabriella Hurst saying that by 2022, I think she's only going to use what she has in her repertoire. She will not bring in new materials. The Copenhagen Fashion Summit has been shouting out about this. There's the Shaping Fashion Initiative launched at Davos, no less, the World Economic Forum, mm. um, which is acting. So there's a lot going on along with lab-grown technologies. But what are you seeing in that space that gives you hope and encouragement? Yes. I mean, look, the, it's it's such a complex topic. We might need a, <laughs> a, a full hour just to discuss this question. Um, but I think, as you said, there's a lot of innovation going on. I think what's most exciting for me is really looking at kind of a demographic shift in perspective. And we, we touched on this last time that we spoke together. And um, so for me, it's really looking at Gen Z's particularly, but also kind of millennials who are really wanting to change. And this is being totally. led, you know, fundamentally by women, which is also incredibly exciting, right? Uh, because they own about 70% of the global apparel market in terms of consumption, because obviously they look after, you know, the consumption of their children too um, at a young age. And so what I've been seeing is really a complete kind of paradigm shift in the way people think about their attachment to clothes in, you know, rising trends and wanting to do DIY and wanting to sort of upcycle, repurpose, ethically donate. And um, there really has been a mindset change, you know, from both my app users perspective, but also that just what I see in the sort of general community, which I think is really, really important 
important because in this whole discussion, there's obviously, you know, a point about what do we need from a regulatory perspective, right? You know, financial markets are so regulated and yet, you know, we really need something that comes totally. in at a higher level you know, from a, a governmental perspective, even maybe, you know, a, a sort of global perspective, because there's so much crossover in terms of supply chains, in terms of water pollution, air pollution, etc. But I'm very excited about this kind of mental shift that's going on. And it gives me hope because it not only means that people are going to look to sort of swap out, and I'm sure we're going to talk about the ease model, but swap out, you know, uh, fast fashion for maybe more sustainable or more quality pieces. Also, obviously, pre-loved, rental, all of these things are coming and fundamentally changing the way these young women are consuming and hopefully that will you know make way for their children to be even more sensitive to issues like this and really you know make it something central in our decision making in the way that we look at our finances and decide what to spend on so that's one of the biggest things that i've seen and then i also think that at a company level there is some kind of very, very primitive or very basic shareholder activism that's happening with companies like H&M and these bigger fast fashion companies. I think shareholders, Absolutely. you know, and the sort of globe, wider community are realizing that, you know, although they can't change their business model, there are things that they can do right now to really make a change, which I'm also excited about. Absolutely. And I think, you know, to your point about younger people, it's really kind of Ground up collective action, isn't it? Indeed. You know, younger people will vote with their feet. They will vote with their voices. They will challenge. And I think we're going to see more and more and more of that. I think as well, you know, interestingly, during the year that's been, a lot of people took to cooking, but they never had previously cooked in their lives or baking or sewing. <laughs> um, you know, my mother, when I was little, used to make our clothes. I had the craziest wardrobe with little trouser suits and all sorts that my mother would put together for me. And it was just I the norm, that. you know, and I think there's a return to that as well. And something, right. I mean, mm. I'll have to show you the pictures, but there's something more, something very fundamental about that. And it's very reconnecting as well. Bianca, tell me about the business. We know in the sustainability world, it's not easy to do the right thing right? And mm. all sorts of things have to happen at different layers, right? In the architectural life we live in. So it's got to be, it's got to be corporations, it's got to be boards, it has to be shareholder activism, it has to be governments. Uh, yeah. You know, we know this with plastic and with all sorts of other things, carbon taxes and so forth, and many other ways that we can actually hold people, societies. Bans on greenwashing. Bans on greenwashing and on and on. But it's hard to be sustainable, right? It's hard because, you know, if you're a startup and you're making clothes and you want to have a pure ecosystem and supply chain all the way through, it's more expensive still, right? To my point earlier about dying, it's actually expensive and it's not a stable process. So it can be hard to get absolutely right. I guess often the colours of naturally dyed clothes can be a little bit more nuanced, which can be really beautiful. But because it hasn't had universal support behind it yet, it's much more expensive, right? So what are you seeing, you know, having launched this business and really wanting to make your mark as a kind of sustainability entrepreneur? What have been the biggest challenges to you so far on a on a human level as you build? Ooh, on a personal level, I think I'll try and split it into two. I think on a personal level, which I know a lot of our users also struggle with as, as young women, you know, living predominantly in kind of urban spaces, um, is this notion of what is the true cost of a garment and what do we need to pay 
to sort of go home and think I've done the right thing and I'm putting my my money, you know, towards someone's living wage, towards the right kind of environmental policies for brands, etc. And I think, you know, sort of decoupling my understanding of, you know, what I'd been sort of taught in the last 10 to 20 years about fast fashion and the fact that a t-shirt could really cost five or 10 pounds with kind of looking at, you know, as you said before, reverting to sort of in- investing in more, not, you know, longer term quality pieces that I'm going to love for a long time um, and really thinking about what I wanted to buy before I bought it. I think that was the biggest dilemma that I faced on a personal level when starting this business. And, you know, um, it's funny, we interviewed someone called Dr. Lynn, Dr. Caroline Mayer, sorry, who's a, a psychologist of fashion and of sort of consumer behavior. And the first thing that she said to me was, the more knowledge you get as a consumer, the harder it is to ignore. And so there's a part of our brain that sometimes switches off that knowledge for us to sort of keep consuming the way we do. So I think for me, the hardest part was always trying to bring my my knowledge back to the front or the forefront of my decisions. And then from a business perspective, the kind of the hardest thing that we struggled with at the beginning was Obviously, you know, taking a stance and locking into, you know, our our articles of association, the fact that we were only going to work with sustainable brands. That was something that investors didn't take too keenly at, you know, or too, sorry, at the beginning. They were sort of saying, well, hey, if we partnered with Zara and H&M and, you know, Boohoo and Pretty Little Thing, wearing's, uh, you know, expansion strategy would would be much easier. The onboarding process would be much easier, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So I think for us, from a a business standpoint, really positioning ourselves as the go-to kind of sustainable partner for women to make these purchasing decisions was really top of mind and we haven't budged from that but then I think that the second thing that really changed the way we approached the business and looked at the business was really understanding demand and looking at that from a data perspective because one of the biggest and most interesting things and arguably the biggest contribution that wearing can make at a a global level rather than at a personal level helping you increase your utilization rates is access to data and sort of, you know, putting together microclusters of data on wardrobe composition, wardrobe utilization rates, wardrobe trends, you know, how are people styling denim miniskirts? How does that differ by demographic? That is really, really vital to sort of really um, making the supply chain more green, talking to brands and getting them to get a better understanding of where demand is and what garments people use the most in the longer term. So I think that was something that was really interesting at the beginning Absolutely. that we were also kind of it's such a good point, right? grappling with. Yeah. And how do you sell data in the right way? How do you package that up? Who do we then sort of build this this data analytics pipeline for? Those were all some of the struggles that, that we faced at the beginning. And personally, I think you're right. And, I, you know, in terms of really taking a stand, because sometimes it hurts, you know, particularly when you're, you're you know, a new business and, you know, you've taken the leap and it's very exciting and very challenging in many different ways, both as a company and and personally, right? But it is very exciting when you get interest from big names or when you think there's a possibility of getting a big account. But we do all have to ask ourselves those questions, right? And I'm sure that decision will serve you tenfold in the long run. I think as well, coming back to, you know, what consumers can do and the point that, you know, you need to keep hearing it. We, we do know there is more we can do. You know, we know we can buy less, right? But to your point, a lot of people purchase because it's it's a stress purchase. 
you know, when you had lunch free, you know, that, that one time a year when you were able to go out for lunch or something and you go shopping, um, you know, when they let you out of the building, right? <laughs> um, exactly. I think it's completely normal. Right. When you're allowed to leave. Um, I think, you know, the stress purchase or you have an event and you think, oh, my gosh, I've got nothing to wear for that wedding or that party or, or whatever it is. Right. And uh, I think, you know, we all need to challenge ourselves. We all need to think about whether we really need something. We need to think about the impact on the planet. We need to read the label. We need to wash less. Right. That's another big th- thing. People don't realize that washing and so wash much better. Is, is, is not good for the clothes or the environment. And wash better, you know, we need to use the right products, need to shop and drop to charity, that type of thing, right? And I think little by little, more and more is happening to the point about this oceanic swell of, you know, people, younger people calling out. And in the business, for you personally, what was your hardest moment so far, if there were one? Ah, D. Again, we could be here all day. Um, I think, you know, for me, the hardest part um, was obviously raising capital as a female founder in the impact space. It's really not very easy. But I think one step kind of removed from that, I think the hardest part... What sort of challenges did you face? Yes. Um, look, I think there, there are a couple that kind of come to mind and I'll share the sort of most uh, impactful ones. <laughs> I think the first thing is just the standard by which you get judged. You know, so I'm obviously a first-time founder. You know, I've got a, a ex-Goldman Sachs background. Um, I did work on a, a fashion tech, two fashion tech IPOs. You know, I did a lot of due diligence on that. That, you know, enabled me to have, you know, a lot of contacts that maybe, you know, a first-time entrepreneur like me wouldn't have, which was a good solid basis to start fundraising. But I was met with so much, you know. Did you get a lot of pushback? A lot of pushback, a lot of kind of, you know, middle-aged men who didn't know much about kind of fashion tech saying to me, well, you know, what have you got so far? What have you done? You know, the due diligence process was just much more difficult, much more actually negative than it really had to be. Um, You know, when I got my COO, who's a man, he also has a fashion and um, finance background to pitch, body language would immediately change. You know, the toughness of the questions would would immediately change. Um, So I think there's a lot of kind of stigma there about first-time female founders um, who are nearing 30s, you know, is it a lifestyle choice? What do you really do? How aggressive are you going to be in scaling your business? Just the whole process was incredibly challenging versus, you know, friends of mine who I know have, you know, raised on pitch decks. Uh, We had traction. We had Vogue International covering our launch, and yet it never seemed to be enough. And then I think the second challenge in terms of fundraising was also just what we wanted to do with the business and staying true to the mission in the face of these, you know, largely male investors who were saying, well, I want this to be a subscription model um, because it's easy for me to comprehend. It's easy for me to advise on. And we were saying, well, hang on, we want to democratize access to this product. We want everyone to be able to use machine learning to, you know, pick out their outfits, to never not have anything to wear. So this is not the right path for us. And then also, I think, you know, for instance, on the caring partners integration that we've just launched, a lot of these these male investors were saying to us, well, why do you need to be able to get something tailored? Surely that doesn't matter. Can't we find other ways of making you money like advertising? And we were saying, well, actually, you know, our users want all these services. This is the easiest way for us to be sustainable and to rewear things that have been lying in our wardrobes. It's to get it tailored. It's to donate it if it doesn't work for credit on Farfetch, etc. These are the kind of things that, that women want. So I think the last part of that challenge was really conveying market demand that's female-based to really create a transformative product 
and get that across to male investors who are, you know, largely kind of saying, mm, well, don't really know if this is the right thing to do. And we were like, yes, this is what the market's been telling us. I also think that, um, of course, experience has a great value and years of working and navigating and adapting bring new wisdom, right? But I also think that, and we touched on this before, sometimes you, you're pitching and the people in front of you don't really understand. They're not in the zeitgeist of today. They're not in the headspace of, you know, what is really going on on the street or among young people. They just don't get that at all. And it's an added battle to convey that message. How did you handle that when you were being grilled or you felt you weren't getting buy-in? What, what was, how did you personally manage that? I completely agree. And I was going to say, I'm, I'm South African. And so I, as a South African, I grew up with the power of storytelling. You know, the way that, you know, people would turn to their communities, a lot of things were passed down orally. And so in my fundraising journey, funnily enough, whenever I was met with resistance, I used to build these case studies of the women of Waring. And that's why Waring is W-H-E-R-I-N-G, because it's all about her, he and her. And so what I would do is I would show investors the YouTube videos that our users would create for us about wearing, about why it was transformative, about why it was the future. We would show them, you know, accounts where people were creating hundreds of thousands of outfits. And we would show them utilization rates saying people have increased their utilization rates by 80% with a product like this. Isn't this awesome? Isn't this the future? And we would also show them, you know, the sort of chat functionality in the app where our users would say to us, can you help us buy sustainable pieces? Where do I get something mended? You know, how can I get an, get access to more services from wearing like a personal stylist? You know, if I really want, you know, more advice, something at a human level, I would show investors all of this. And I would say, this is the future of the product. This is right from the mouth of the consumer or our wearers, as we call them. And that narrative would really help me fight the pushback. Yeah. And I think, listen, you know, I salute you because it's not easy. It's one thing intellectualizing on a conversation, but it's another being in a room and having to deal with that in real time. And it's not easy. And, you know, it may or may not get easier. It just depends, right? You know, there's always going to be someone who's going to um, <laughs> pick holes. And also that's part of their role, right? So if you look at it like that too, um, and, you know, we do know the statistics around, um, you know, funding for female-led businesses and so forth. It's abjectly much lower than that for men. And I think there are great women founders out there like you, and we just have to keep going and keep pushing and keep putting forward what we believe in, right? So Bianca, what is um, the biggest challenge to you today in your sustainability entrepreneurship quest? Uh, very easily, I'd say onboarding as many women as possible onto a product like wearing. Because I think what we need to do now is really look at the user journey and look at key strategic partnerships that we can build in order to make this whole process as easy as possible. Because Dee, at the end of the day, I'm also a consumer first and foremost. I still buy things from Amazon, even if I've got all the bags to go to, you know, the store where I can buy things in bulk without plastic right around the corner from me in Hackney. Yet life gets in the way. Um, and I think that's really the thing that we're fighting the most is 
How do we stop life getting in the way? How do we make these swaps as easy as possible across the user journey? So I'm thinking, you know, the likes of how can we integrate a secondhand platform like Depop, Vestiaire Collective, Vinted, so that whenever you want to sell things in your digital wardrobe and wearing, you can export that at the click of a button using our tags and our computer vision to do that automatically. You know, how can we, again, we've just done this, but, you know, how can we help you ethically donate and get credit on Farfetch, you know, so partnering with the likes of Thrift Plus, those kind of people. Um, and I think that's our biggest challenge at the moment. We really need to look at what does our Which user... Which I love. I mean, I love that concept. Oh, me too. Me too. Really. And, it, and, it, and I think it's so powerful emotionally because you know that you're rehoming your garments, you're giving them a better life um, or an extension of their current life which is also really positive. And I think it reinforces that circular mentality that we all need to adopt more. But then again, I think, you know, from the product perspective, we also have to onboard, you know, amazing brands that are sustainable, you know, just do more there to show bigger breadth in terms of plus size, petite, et cetera, because these are still challenges within the industry, you know, from a a sort of innovation perspective, getting more brands to do more uh, from that side. Um, And then I think lastly is really to take the app social, because as I said, I'm a big fan of community. I'm a big fan of storytelling. And for me, you know, wearing ultimately needs to get me as a user to the stage where I can open my my wardrobe up to Jessica down the street, Rachel, you know, in South Ken, who we've been friends for years. Um, How can we lend? How can we swap with each other? How can we borrow? All of those things are so powerful. And I want users to be able to do that for free on my platform. Well, I think that's a fantastic goal and I know you're you're going to get there. I also think that um to your point it's got to be easy, right? Yes. And but everyone it's it's like any degree of being on the environmental journey. It's like not using plastic, it's like having your plastic bottle or your your bottle for water when you move around town or you go on a flight, which people are starting to do, you know, little by little again, uh, which is wonderful. We're all escaping a little bit. And I think it's putting in place mechanisms in one's daily life, right? But equally with this platform, yes. it's about making it easy. Right. If it's not easy, people fundamentally, I think, are quite lazy, <laughs> you know, and we're just used they to our really old and green habits. It's making it easy, making it fun, making it engages. Right. So, Bianca, we have to wrap slowly. We could talk so long on this subject, and I know we will again very soon. But tell me, you know, particularly with the year that's been um, having launched this business during an exceptional year, which is was a very brave thing to do. And, you know, you're starting to see the results already. And of course, it's a very exciting journey ahead. What's the best piece of advice you've been given by someone you, you have faith in over this past year that's kept you going? Oh, gosh, again, I wouldn't even know where to start. <laughs> Let me give you two pieces of advice. The first one was unlearn everything you've been told. And what this means to me is in my corporate career, you were always told in your performance reviews, in meetings, etc., to work on your weaknesses. You got to get better at this. You got to do better at that. You know, how can you learn? How can you bridge your your, your knowledge gaps, etc.? This piece of advice around unlearn that means focus on your strength. I couldn't agree more. And I've done that since the beginning of my entrepreneurial journey, and it helps you just fill the gaps with other people who can do things a hundred times better. Don't spend time trying to learn to code. At the beginning of my journey, I thought, I'll make my own website. I'm gonna do this and that. Fundamentally, I can do that, 
but I'm a non-technical founder and my time was much better invested in the creative part of the process, in the fundraising, in the partnerships, in the building out the team. That was really where I could add value. And so I would say, if you're looking at doing something like this, focus on building on your strengths. And then the second part, which sounds silly, but is really go with your gut. I think a lot of young women at the moment have, and myself included, have what, what we call imposter syndrome when you're starting out as a first-time entrepreneur or as a second-time entrepreneur. It can come back at any point. You know, do I know the answer to this? What do I do? Um, so for me, I'm really lucky in my life to have my partner who is really kind of my sounding board. He always says to me, Bianca, you have the answer. You just have to dig down and find it. Take the time you need to process feelings. Take the time you need to test things out. But ultimately, you have the answer inside you and you just need to trust that and go for it. I think as well, to your point, I think still, certainly in the UK and in Europe, there is this um, you know, stigma around things not working out, around failure, around being fearful. And as I always say to anyone that wants mm. to listen to me, including my children, <laughs> you know, just give it a go. Like, what's the worst that can happen? Just give it a go, right? And I think, you know, in the States, there's just such an entirely different attitude around flopping or something not working or, you know, setting up your nth venture, right? Like failure should be saluted. One of my former guests, a friend of mine, Shan Sutherland, talks a lot about this. You know, we should salute failure. We should salute giving it a go, right? Not keeping it in our head and getting it across the line. But people will burst your bubble very, very quickly. So it's very important to your second point about sitting with intuition. Because at the end of the day, we sort of know the answers, don't we? Yeah, we do. We do. And you know, my mother always used to say to me, knowledge is power. So even if wearing fails tomorrow, I will have built up a set of skills, a set of a knowledge base that no one can take away from me. And you just got to see it like that. Absolutely. And then you. <laughs> you've got to see it like that and just keep going. I also think, and it sounds so hackneyed and cliched, but a lot of um, founders and a lot of very famous founders talk about the journey. And really, it is the journey that makes you, mm. it is the journey that connects you. It's the build, right? And I think that's, it, it's a question of just putting the seatbelt on and going for it at high speed and giving it all you've got. And not getting too fixated on, you know, the end goal in five years, because the end goal will look different. It'll either look, you know, better or 10 times better than you can imagine, right? And it is about each of those little steps and getting something out of them and learning from them. And I think sometimes those are the most beautiful moments, even when they're very stressful, because you understand what you're able to do. You understand there's a marketplace. You understand what you're capable of, right? You understand how resilient you are. And, exactly. and you also learn to pivot and move in a much more agile way, right? Which is super exciting. Absolutely. Anyway, Bianca, it's been brilliant to have you today. Thank you so much for joining me. And I look forward to the growth and development and evolution and huge success of wearing. Thank you so much for having me, Dee. Such a pleasure. Thank you for joining me on Double Espresso with Dee. I hope you enjoyed this episode and can subscribe and share these fascinating stories. 